As I shared with you already in our announcements, the last three weeks we've had a series to really talk about the purposes of why we exist as individuals as a church, because the church is made up of individuals, people. It's not about a building. It's not about any of those things. It's about us as people. And what is God's purpose in our lives? And, and we basically said this. It's, it's real simple. It's something that all of us can remember. God says in the great commandment, he says that we're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're to love our neighbor as ourself. We're to love God. We're to love people. That's the purpose of, of life for us. But the, the problem with that, it's, even though that's very simple to say, love God, love people, what it means in, in, in reality is much more difficult to understand. It's not impossible. It's just a little more extensive than that. So this year, basically, what we've committed as a leadership team, as, as a staff, as a church, is to help us to go back and look at the very basics of what our purposes are as a church. Loving God, loving people. What does that mean in reality in our lives? And how do we tie that together with what God's Word has to say in all the other places? Because it all ties together. And in a real sense, one of the things we're going to be doing this year is we're going to have a year-long journey toward Christ-likeness. Uh, that we would become more like Christ. We would become more like Christ in our actions and in our attitudes. Because the word Christian actually means a little Christ, a follower of Christ, someone who emulates who Christ is. Someone who's given their life to Christ is what we're trying to do. So by the end of this ministry year, which will be next June, what we'll be looking at all this year is in several different ways, we'll be looking at how we can look and live more like Jesus Christ in every area of our life. Because we can never truly love God and love people until we do just that. Now, the problem so often and why it's a little more difficult to understand occasionally about what it means to love God and love people is because it's kind of a paradox. It's, it's not always what we think it, it is. There's actually in our men's fraternity, we've been talking about this for the last couple of weeks, in men's fraternity that meets on, on uh, Wednesday mornings at 6 a.m., also on Saturday mornings. Uh, as we've been talking there, there's a principle that comes out of Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25, that says this. Jesus said to them, to all of them, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my own sake will save it. For what profit is this to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? There's this paradox of if we're to really live life, we have to die to certain things in our life. To live is to die, and it sounds like a paradox. And it's, we talk about the, par, the principles we'll be talking about in Scripture for the next eight weeks, uh, which is called the Beatitudes. They seem to be paradoxes, things that we do not seem to think. It sounds like, well, that means to be happy. Uh, that doesn't sound like happiness to me. But if we I'll hang in there and, and understand each week what, what God is trying to say to us, because... We often ask this question, what would it take to make me happy? What would it take to make you happy? What do you think from the world standpoint? Well, um, a few years ago, in uh, Psychology Today, there was a study done of 52,000 people, 52,000 Americans. And these were their answers to the question, what would it take to make you happy? And these are in order, okay? Uh, their answers were friends or social life, the right job, being in love, recognition and success, sex, personal growth, a good financial situation, having a house or an apartment, being attractive and beautiful, the city that I live in, my religion, recreation and exercise, being a parent, marriage, and then finally your partner's happiness. Came to the very bottom of that list. Well, that was kind of sad. Um, 
The interesting thing about all these things that we're talking about here is these all attempts are to find happiness through external situations. They're all external things that happen in our lives. Because the, 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 the popular idea of happiness is this, having the right circumstances. You know, if, if my day, if I ask somebody, you know, how was your day? How do you usually respond? It's based upon what happened that day. You know, I had a good day if these things happened. I had a bad day if these things happened. It's all about external things that happened in our life. It's what I call when and then thinking. When and then thinking. It's when I get out of school, then I'll be happy. Or uh, when I get a job, then I'll be happy. When I get married, then I'll be happy. When I have kids, uh, then I'll be happy. When the kids leave home, then I'll be happy. I mean, isn't that the way we think when and then? When this happens, then this is going to be happening in my life. I'm going to be happy when this circumstance, when this thing happens in my life. Well, the classic, uh, the classic chapter in, script, in Scripture about happiness or the search for happiness is in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon says this. He says at the very beginning of the chapter, verse 1, he says, I decided to enjoy myself and find out what happiness is. And so we see in Ecclesiastes, I challenge you if you want to read about the, the, the trivial pursuits and the pursuit of happiness in all the wrong ways, and you want to understand what that means, look at Ecclesiastes 2. Just read that this week, okay? That's your homework. Ecclesiastes 2. Because Solomon said that after, and, and you read through this chapter, all the pursuits he had of happiness, he said that was his thing. He was going to find out what happiness is. And he said, I tried and found three dead ends. He said, the dead ends are accumulating things, experiencing pleasures, and achieving success. Solomon had these in abundance. And he said, after all those were dead ends, and he spent all of his time, he was the wealthy, he had all kinds of pleasure, he was the most successful man of his time. But he found himself at the very end of his day saying this, all of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Because we think that for some reason by accumulating things we're going to be happy. If I could, if you ever heard anybody, if I could just win the lottery, man, I would be happy. Someone asked Howard Hughes years ago, one of the richest men in the United States at the time, actually in the world at the time, they asked him this question, how much does it take a man, uh, how much does it take to make a man happy? You know what his answer was? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. There's never enough, no matter how wealthy you are. Just a little bit more. Because it's an elusive pursuit about making us happy. You can't buy happiness. I'm sorry, TV lies. You can't buy happiness. It doesn't work. And we also we experience pleasure. We want to have pleasure. We seek the search the latest thrill. You know, every weekend America goes on a thrill expedition. We do. Everybody looks forward to the weekends. You know, those 60 hours of the weekend where I can, you know, do something during the week because I have to go through all the humdrum and the boredom of the week. But on the weekend, man, I'm going to do something to make me happy. I'm going to go on a vacation. I'm going to take a trip. I'm going to do something, whatever. And Solomon said, I've tried it all and the chief success, having pleasure. It doesn't work. It doesn't make you happy. You see, the popular idea of happiness is having the right circumstances. But God's way to happiness is having the right attitude. It's about the internal stuff of life. And that's what we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks. So if you have your Bible this morning, uh, open it to, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And uh, we're going to be looking for the next several weeks at uh, it's Jesus' opening lines of probably the most famous sermon of all time. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. 
And, uh, and in the Sermon on the Mount, as he begins the Sermon on the Mount, after a f- couple of introductory comments, beginning with verse 3, he begins to talk about eight principles, eight uh, positive statements about happiness. We call them the Beatitudes. But we have to be careful because, uh, 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 because of sometimes our view of happiness. We'll be defining that a little bit more. Uh, the question I had when I began to read this is this. Of all, the, of all the subjects that Jesus could have chosen to speak on when he started the Sermon on the Mount, this most famous sermon of all, this kind of collection of his teachings, why did he choose this, this subject of how to be happy? Why did he choose that subject as the, the, the intro? Because usually as a good speaker, one of the things you want to do is you want to grab people's attention right off the bat and your intro to your message, to your sermon, to your public speaking. Whatever you're doing, the important thing is your intro. You either lose people or you grab people. You know, this morning, talking about happiness is something that most people are interested in. And, and so why did he, Jesus do it? Because he knew that everybody was searching, but very few people find the type of happiness that they're looking for because they're looking for it in all the wrong places. That was a country music song, wasn't it? I don't know. But anyway, so for the next eight weeks, we're going to look at these eight Beatitudes uh, of how to be happy, not just principles for personal happiness, but also a prescription for emotional health. And each of these uh, Beatitudes, uh, originally in King James and in other translations, begins with the word blessed. Blessed. Actually, it's an old English word. But it's translated, and maybe in some of your more modern translations, it's translated the word happy. But the problem is so often um, it it's kind of loses uh, effect in the translation because we think of happiness in a very uh, shallow type of way, superficial type of way. And what Jesus is talking about, he's talking about this inner joy, this inner peace that really has nothing to do with the circumstances of life. And really he's talking about, in a real sense too, as you look at these Beatitudes, he's talking about the way we also enter the kingdom of God. It's not about just being happy, but he's saying this. He's saying the only way to find real happiness is to become a part of the kingdom of God. To become a part, the kingdom of God is a place where God rules in our hearts and our lives. It's not something in the future, it's something now. It's in the present tense. And so uh, we're going to be talking about that. And so as we look, this is a quick review of the next eight weeks. As we look at the Beatitudes, we'll be looking at things like this. The first step in entering the kingdom is this. The first step to happiness is being poor in spirit. Realizing your spiritual poverty. The second one is mourning over our spiritual poverty. The third one is humbly falling down before the glory of God in in your condition. The fourth one is then pleading for a righteousness which you don't have and to hunger for it. The fifth one, then it begins to manifest itself in an attitude of mercy towards others, a pursuit of purity and peacemaking in our own life, and often it creates hostility in a world that doesn't see happiness in that way. That's the flow of the Beatitudes. They build upon one another. So I challenge you, hey, be here every week you can. And if you miss a week, go back and listen to the podcast because they do build on one another. Some, some commentators have called the Beatitudes a ladder. It's kind of a step. It's a stepping stone of, of finding peace and contentment and joy, real joy in our life. And you have to understand how they all fit together because these do in Scripture. And we'll be looking at those things. But when you read these things... Uh, don't some of these uh, things, do you think them, they sound like contradictions? I mean, how many of us think about happy if you're sad? What? Uh, how about happy if you're poor? Happy if you're put down and persecuted? You know, how many of you, oh, yeah, that's the way I want to be. Yeah, that's why it's called a paradox. It's, it's, it's not what we think. 
Jesus was saying that you can be happy in spite of circumstances. Isn't that good news? Real inner joy does not happen because of circumstances. We all have good and bad things that happen in your life. Whether your day was good or bad does not be determined upon the circumstances according to God's definition and the definition he wants us to have because God wants us to have happiness. You know, the Bible talks time and time again that God really desires for us to have this inner peace, this inner joy in our life. He's not a, you know, a, a eternal killjoy. He wants, us to, he wants us to really have happiness in our life. And Jesus said, I want to teach you that happiness depends not on the right circumstances, but it depends on the right attitudes. And my happiness is not determined by what's happening around me, but what, rather what's happening in me. And so for the next eight weeks, we're going to look at what that means. Now, this morning I want to talk about the first of the Beatitudes. Uh, and, 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 and really in a sense, before I say that, let me say this. Happiness really in a sense is a choice we make. It's a choice we make. You choose the attitude you're going to have. Basically right now, whether you're happy or sad or somewhere in between, you're about as happy as you choose, choose to be. And life is tough. There are lots of things that don't go right and don't go your way, but happiness depends on choosing the right attitudes. So briefly this morning, let's look at the first beatitude. And this is this. In, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, it says this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed is the poor in spirit. What does he mean by poor in spirit? He's not talking about low self-esteem, by the way. Uh, he's not talking about putting yourself down all the time. That's not what it means to be poor in spirit. Uh, it, you have value. God says that, you know, Jesus didn't die on a cross for junk. He died for people who have value in his eyes. And so being poor in spirit doesn't mean we go around and think, woe is me, I'm not worth anything, I'm a worm. Okay? But the issue is, at the same time, even though we have worth, it doesn't mean you're perfect because you're not and I'm not. All of us have sinned, the Bible says. All of us sin and fall short of God's glory. It's a perfect idea. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It simply means this. This is a very brief definition of poor in spirit. We're going to expand upon this this morning. It means, simply means to depend upon God. Being poor in spirit means that I realize I need to depend upon God for all things. He's talking about humility. That's the closest English word that defines it here. Humility, admitting that I don't have it all together. Realizing that I haven't arrived. Realizing I haven't learned it all. That I'm not the sum total of the universe. That I'm not perfect. I did a word study on this, uh, this word poor. And, and, and there's a couple of words used in the New Testament. Uh, two Greek words that are used for poor. And they're, and they're not the same. The word used here is a Greek word called tokos. And tokos simply means to, it's kind of an interesting word. This is what the word tokos means. It means to cower or cringe like a beggar. That's a strange thing to God, be poor in that way. Uh, it's the idea of shrinking from something. It carries this, the classic idea of begging out of shame. Uh, the person who is this type of poor is a beggar. That they, they're somebody that has no wealth, no influence, no position, no honor, no respect. In some cases, possessing nothing but the ragged clothes they wear. They're a beggar. They have no opportunities in life. There's another word translated poor in the New Testament, and that's the word paness. And paness means it's a different kind of poverty. That's a poverty that demands the diligent daily labor for us to make it do. It's, it's a person that has no savings account whatsoever. If they don't work that day, guess what? They don't eat. 
We have many, 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 many people in the world, I found out, that have that kind of poverty in their lives. That's probably that, that kind of thing where every day you have to work just to sustain life. But this word he uses here is not that word. The word he uses here, poor in spirit, is the word tokos. It means having the idea, the humility of saying, you know, unless God does it, it's not going to happen. And not only do I have to, it's not about how hard I work and I have to work every day for it, but it's about the fact that I could, no matter what I can do, it's not going me- to measure up. It's not going to be enough. It doesn't mean I don't have value, but it simply means that because of what God has done in the world, the only way that I'm going to have a relationship with God, the only way that I'll have true happiness in life, the only way that, that I'm really going to experience the, God, the life that God wants me is this, is I have to empty myself of me so that God can fill me up with him. As long as I get in the way, guess what? I'll never find experience, experience true peace. And true joy. That's why God starts here with this. You know, before you can fill up a vessel and fill it up all the way, it has to be emptied all the way. You know, that's one of the things when you come to Jesus Christ you have to do. You have to say, God, I can't do it on my own. I do not have the ability to earn favor with you. And so, God, I empty myself of who I am. I can't do it. God, come in and do for me what I can't do for myself. That's the type of humility. That's the type of being poor in spirit that it talks about here. Uh, the Good News translation uses it, says it this way. It says, happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. Uh, the Living Bible says, happy are the humble. The point that Jesus is starting off with today is simply this. Hum, humble and happy go together. Humility and happiness go together. They're twins. They're soulmates. And if you want to have lasting happiness in life, you need to learn to be humble. So let's talk about what that does. What does humility do for you? This type of humility where you say, I can't do it myself. When you have a type of humility, what does it do? How can humility increase your happiness and my happiness in life? Isn't that what you want to know? I mean, you don't need a word study. I mean, if if it doesn't do anything for you, correct? Let's be honest. We want to know what it means for me. And so let's talk about that. Four, three things that humility does. Humility reduces stress. True humility reduces stress. Um, when I'm humble, I don't have to have all the answers. Isn't that good? I don't know about you, but that's good. I mean, I have people come to me all the time, ask me hard questions, and I'm saying, let's pray about that. Because I don't have all the answers. I don't have it immediately then. I believe that God has all the answers. And if I seek God, he'll give me the answers. But in and of myself, I don't have all the answers. Humility reduces stress. You don't have to be the, the eternal answer man. You know, I realize, you know we, we realize that the world does not depend on me. I can resign as general manager of the universe if I'm humble. Wouldn't that be cool as a parent? To be able to be humble before your kids? And they come to you and ask you a hard question, which you do not know the answer to. And instead of making up something, simply saying, Let, we'll find out, let's, we'll, we'll search together for the answer for this. But the issue is so often we have stress in our life because we always think we have to have the answer to everything. See, when I'm humble, humble I don't have to fake it. I don't have to pretend that I'm perfect because God doesn't demand that I be perfect in order to be happy. I don't have to play God and assume responsibility that's not mine. Uh, also, when I'm humble, I can live with the tension between the real and the ideal. Um, 
the way I want to live my life, the way I want my career to go, the idea for my family, my marriage, my kids, you know, the way it really is. There's this tension always between the ideal and the real in our lives. And when I'm humble, we realize there's this tension. And humility accepts the, facts that, accepts the fact that you can be happy because you're depending on God even though things aren't ideal. You may not have the best job and your marriage may not be perfect, but that, those, that's external circumstances really don't, don't matter in regard to, your, to, your, uh, to, to this whole thing of happiness. And I'm also convinced that we take, uh, oftentimes in life, why it reduces stress too, is that we take ourselves way too seriously and God not seriously enough. I had a few years ago, somebody asked me, uh, Bill, I know you have a master's degree. Are you going to go for your doctorate? And I looked at them and said, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know. I think one of the things that holds me back is this. I know a lot of people who have doctorates, so they have to go around and be called doctor all the time. And I can't imagine myself being called Dr. White. Or Dr. Bill. You know, I mean, I have a struggle with, if you, if you have this problem, if you have a doctorate, you know, praise God. But if you have to be called that, you have an issue. You know, because the issue is it's, it's a self-esteem issue. It is, we, we take ourselves way too seriously sometimes. We need to lighten up. And when you're humble, you don't have to have, you don't have to go around all the time and take yourself seriously. I think that's the crux of almost every one of our problems. We're trying to impress people with who we are and because we know who we really are and who we want to be, there's this tension, there's this stress because it really doesn't measure up. Guess what? Everybody knows that you're not really who you think you are or who you say you are. Right? I mean, all of us have this image issue sometimes, and so we have to deal with this. And and so the first thing is this. Humility reduces stress in our lives. Now, how many of you like to reduce your stress in your life? Anybody here like to do that? Okay. Be humble. That's what, that's what it's saying here. Be humble. Realize you can't do it all. God even asked you to do it all. Be humble. Number one. Number two, humility improves my relationships. Humility, how many of you like to have greater relationships? Do not raise your hand because you might be sitting next to somebody that you really want to improve your relationship with, and they'll take it wrong. Okay. Um, I mean, how many of you love to, to be around people with big heads? Man, I love to be around people who are prideful. Yeah, it's my favorite type of person to hang out with, prideful people. See, prideful people are a pain in the blessed assurance. They're a pain sometimes, right? Let's just be honest with each other. And selfish, self-centered people are an irritation. Nobody likes to be around those type of people. They wreck relationships. Self-centered people are never happy, never happy. They're never, never, never happy. Because they're unhappy, they make everybody else unhappy. They spread all their gloom and doom simply by their egotism. On the other hand, how many of you like to be around humble people? You can raise your hand about that one, okay? I like to be around humble people. Those people that don't think they're so hot, they realize who they are. They have a healthy appreciation of their strengths and their weaknesses. They aren't always trying to impress you. And, and you know, it's kind of like this. When you're around a person who's, who's got a big head, when you tell something, they always try to tell something bigger. You know, well, I caught a fish. Well, I caught a whale. You know? I mean, it's always one-upsmanship. You can't have a conversation with, you know, with big-headed people because all they do is tell you one bigger... Because they have, to, they have to make themselves look bigger all the time. 
See, when you have humility, it improves your relationships. You don't have... When you're humble, you get along with people better. You do. Because humility doesn't mean you think less of yourself. You just think more of others. And when you become interested in others, you become interesting to others. Let me say that again. When you become interested in others, you become interesting to others. You know, there's nothing worse. You know, I'm so glad I'm past the dating age, you know. You know, those of you remember, those of you still dating or anything, you know, bless you. Um, because I remember going on dates years ago, and you go out on a date, and all the other person did is talk about themselves. Don't you love those people? That lasts about one date, you know. You know, I love people, though, who would listen. He would stop and want to know about me. They would listen to me. So you have better relationships when you're a humble person. You don't have to be right all the time. You don't have to tell bigger stories. Uh, you get able to say, I'm sorry. Uh, that's the two hardest words of all, of all time, I'm sorry. Or the three hardest words, I was wrong. Or the, or the other three hardest words, I need help. See, humility improves our relationships. When I'm poor in spirit, which means I don't have to fake it and pretend that I'm perfect, it reduces my stress and, and it re- improves my relationships because I am humble enough to ask for forgiveness. I thought it was interesting. Uh, there was a guy named St. Francis of Assisi, and he was a monk, okay? You know what monks are, right? Uh, he wasn't married, okay? And he had a method of maintaining humility, which I thought was unique, okay? His method of maintaining humility was this. In his memoirs, he said this. He said, anytime anyone praised him, in order to stay humble, he had a fellow monk sit down and tell him all his faults. You know why he did that? Because he wasn't married. Some of you got it just now. Some of you will get it tomorrow. But I'll be going and tell you about that. You know, he had, he had, never, he had to ask a fellow monk because he was, most of us don't need to go to a monk, do we? Some of you may have your heavenly sandpaper at home. <clears throat> we laugh at this, but ladies, it's not your job to keep your husband humble, and husbands, it's not your job to keep your wives humble. That's God's job. Uh, I love what Ruth Graham says about Billy Graham, or says, says, she says this, my job is to love Billy. God's job is to keep him humble. That's the case. You know, we need need that kind of relationship. God can do a better job than you can in keeping somebody humble. In your marriage, you need to be a supporter and an encourager. Let God do the humiliating. He can do it easy enough if we really listen to God. So humility improves my relationships. I, I find that when I'm full of pride, I, eat, I bruise easily. Um, I'm very sensitive to other people's comments. When I'm pumped up trying to impress people and someone says something that really shouldn't bother me, it hurts. It's like sticking a pen in a balloon, which I hope doesn't happen uh, while I'm sitting around here during the sermon. But the issue is, is that, um, I've, I, on the other hand, I've discovered when I'm walking humbly before the Lord and, and just being who I am and being honest, depending upon God, I'm almost immune to insults. So being humble improves relationships and it reduces stress. Number three, humility releases God's power. This may be the most important part of this whole deal. See, God is saying to us, if you want to be happy, if you want to be happy in life, you have to plug into his power. And the only way God can work in your life is for you to let yourself empty yourself of who you are and be humble to say, God, I can't do it. You plug into my life. See, as long as we try to do it, um, we can't do as much. 
I was with a group of uh, 60-some ministers Monday and Tuesday of this week. All of our denominational ministers from the FEC, Fellowship of Evangelical Churches, met together for two days to talk about the future of our denomination. Can you imagine being in a room with 60 people that were all pastors? It was not easy. But it was good. It was good. But one thing that we prayed about, we spent the first two hours when we were there praying about this. You know, the, the question that one per, or the, the statement that our leader, our new uh, denominational director, said is this. You know, it's amazing in America what, the ch- what churches can do without the Holy Spirit. Think about that. We have so many resources. We do all kinds of things without the Holy Spirit. The question is, what can we do with the Holy Spirit? You know, we can be clever, we can have programs, we can have all kinds of things in our life without God's Spirit, God's power living in our lives. But what if we empty ourselves of us and say, God, you have to do it through us? In your life, when you go through struggles, instead of trying to fix everything all the time and think you have to be the answer person, there comes times in life when you just have to say, God, I can't do this. You know, I can't do this. You have to do it. And so humility, coming to the place of saying to God, I can't do it, God, you have to do it through me, it it releases God's power in my life. It does incredible things. James chapter 4, verse 6 says this, God gives strength to the humble, but he sets himself against the proud. God gives strength to the humble, but he sets himself against the proud. You don't have to even raise your hand for this question because I know it's true. Would you like to have God's strength in your life? Would you really like to have God's strength in your life for every decision every day, for everything you do? The Bible says that the secret of spiritual power is to walk humbly before the Lord, to realize you have to depend on Him. I was reminded of that this past week. Um, one of the things that I do in life, uh, fairly regularly, not all the time, but fairly regularly, is journal. Journal means that each day uh, when I'll sit down and I'll take God's Word, and I'll read some scripture, and I'll pray. And then at the end of that, what I'll do is I'll sit down and write some uh, things that I think that God's teaching. Maybe write down one of the scripture passages that stood out. Or, or, or I ask myself the question, you know, what is God's blessings in my life? You know, it's amazing that when you begin to sit down and write stuff out, you can begin to see things that you didn't see when you didn't take the time to do that. And so when I was journaling earlier this week, I was reminded of the blessings of God. And, and what happened to me, a couple of things happened to me. One, I was overwhelmed by the goodness of God in my life. Uh, you know, he allowed me to be born in America. That's a blessing. In some, some ways, it's a curse. It's a blessing, though. It's, it's a blessing. I live indoors. You know, I have a roof over my head. Millions, billions of people in this world do not have that. Uh, steady roof, three meals a day. I have three meals a day. And I have a great group of people who love me, not only my family, but my church family. And that was the first thing that happened. And then once, once I understood that, then I was humbled by that. The goodness of God in my life overwhelmed me. And the second thing that happened, the other thing was I had this deep sense as I was sitting there journaling, I had this deep sense of responsibility. Because I I feel pastoring this church and knowing from week to week that people are coming here looking for a word from God um, and saying, what does God have to say about my life? I feel this deep sense of inadequacy. I have to be honest with you on a regular basis. Sometimes it's even fear. You know, I've said to God before, God, you got the wrong guy. Uh, I can't do this on my own. 
Because the only way that I can lead this church is to be totally dependent upon God because I am not the answer guy. Let you know that. Build great confidence in me. But it should because the thing is, is that you shouldn't be confident in me. You should be confident in God. And if I allow God to work through me and our leadership allows God to work through them, it should give you confidence in the God, not in us. So I had a little prayer meeting with God, and, and I said this. I, want, I wrote this down. I said, I want to remind myself that this is your church. It belongs to you. And although you have used me to help grow this church from 150 to five, 600 people over the last few years, even though you've done that, God, anytime you want to take me out and put me somewhere else, I'm open. Because, God, I don't want to get in your way. When I think about those things, that God, it's, it's not because I'm trying to, uh, you know, I'm afraid. I'm, sometimes I am afraid. It's when I take my eyes off of God when that happens. Because I have this little ritual every Sunday morning. Uh, you, you don't know about it. My wife don't even know about it. Um, I do this every Sunday morning. This, it's a, all of a four-minute drive from my house to here, so I don't have a lot of time to think. But um, I, I, I ask God to use me. It's one of the things that I get in my car. I don't close my eyes, by the way. I drive with my eyes open. And I ask God to use me today, at, you know, around 6 a.m. when I'm driving here. And then, uh, and then I offer my resignation to God. I do it every Sunday. Done it for years. Uh, God, I'm going, this is kind of what I'm saying. God, I'm going to do this today, but if you don't want me to do this next week, you work it out. I know this is uh, your will today for me to be here, but I'm just living one day of a t- at a time, and I will not presume upon uh, anything that you want to do because that would be arrogance. And then what I do is I recommit myself to to the Lord and ask him to empower me and help me. I humble myself voluntarily before God and say, God, it's your day. And and I really appreciate recently we started the thing, and this is something that's probably more important than anything that happens here on any Sunday. And most of you don't even know what happens. But Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock, I have one of the leadership team come in and pray with me and any other staff and anybody else who wants to pray about today, about what God would do today. Not only through me, but through everything that happens here at Great Oaks. Because we realize this, and I realized this a while back, you know, we pray during the week, but man, it's important to pray right before that something happens, that God will just once again be reminded that, you know, all of the preparation we've done, it's nothing without God. You see, I, I can't do this every week consistently. I can't come up with the fresh, creative ideas week after week, year after year. Nobody can. But God can. Because I believe what it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, when I take that attitude before the Lord, that there are many times I walk up here and the power of God falls on my life, I believe that. It's not because of who I am, but because of who God is. And I think when that that principle here that Jesus is stating is this, the secret of strength is admitting weakness. The secret of power is admitting helplessness. The secret of happiness is humility. The secret of victory is total surrender to God. And I love this in the Phillips translation of Matthew 5, 3, it says this, happy are those who know their need for God for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That means that all that God has to offer is available to each of us, but only when we empty ourselves of us and allow God to move in our lives in real ways. You see, the fact is this. The fact is this. Every one of you, every one of us need God. 
We need Christ in our life to live life fully. You need God's power to make it this week. I do. And if you don't think you do, um, if you walk out of here saying, I don't need God in my life this week to make it, then good luck. You'll have to solve all of your problems in your own power, your own ability, your own strength, and then wonder why you're tired all the time, why you're stressed all the time, why your relationships are lousy all the time, why God's power doesn't show up. But when you walk before the Lord and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, apart from him I can do nothing, when you have that attitude, what it does, God allows you to have the supernatural power that only comes to his people when we open ourselves to him. So, what's this all mean? John 13, 17 says this. I love this verse. It says this, Now that you know the truth, how happy you will be if you put it into practice. Now that you know the truth, how happy you will be if you put it into practice. Let me ask yourself this question this morning. Where do I need to practice humility this week? Where do I need to depend on God more this week? Because happy is the person who's able to come to God and say, God, I need you. I need you. I can't do it on my own. Would you pray with me right now? Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.